Our second reading from scripture today is from Mark 10, 35 to 41, and 44 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts together upon your word to us today, O Lord, be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to have to go through? Jesus asks the twins, James and John, and they say, of course we're able. We're ready, willing, and able. So with these twins on our minds, I'd like to begin with a short story about overconfidence and how overconfidence can a lot of times cause us to miss the mark. It was the end of the school year, and the kindergarten teacher was receiving gifts from her students. The florist's son handed her a gift-wrapped box She shook it, held it over her head, and then she said, I bet I know what it is, flowers. That's right, the boy said, how did you know? With a confident smile, the teacher said, just a wild guess. The next pupil was the little daughter of the candy shop owner. The teacher held her gift, shook it, held it over her head, and then said, I bet I can guess what this is, a box of candy. That's right, but how did you know, the little girl said. Oh, just a wild guess. The next gift was from the son of the liquor store owner. The teacher held that package, shook it over head, and saw that it was leaking a little bit. So she touched a drop with her finger, took a little taste. Hmm, she said, is it wine? No, the boy replied with some excitement. The teacher repeated the process, taking a little bit bigger drop and putting it on her tongue now, tasting it. 
Is it champagne, she asked. No, the boy replied with even more excitement. The teacher took one more big taste now before declaring, I give up if it's not wine or champagne. What is it? And with great glee, the little boy answered, it's a puppy. Mark is the only gospel writer who tells the story that Lori read second here from Mark's gospel. Jesus has just told his followers for the third time in three straight chapters here in the middle of Mark's gospel that what being the Messiah means is that he's going to be betrayed, condemned, spit on, mocked, beaten, and then killed before he's raised into glory. So we pick up the action today with the text Lori read in chapter 10 with Jesus on the road with his entourage walking with that group of his closest male and female disciples, his followers, his learners. Two of them, the twins, sons of Zebedee, James and John, kind of trot up alongside Jesus and kind of pull him to the side and ask him for a special favor. Teacher, they say, within earshot of everyone else, We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Grant us to sit beside you, one at your right hand and one at your left, when you enter into your glory. The rest of the disciples can hear what they're saying, and they aren't happy with James and John. Interestingly, Matthew's gospel tells a version of this story, but Matthew takes the heat or the pressure off the twins. In Matthew's gospel, it's their mother, Mrs. Zebedee, who asks Jesus to promise that her two boys get to, set, get, get to sit next to him, one at his right and one, and one at his left, as his kind of first lieutenants in glory. But in Mark today, it's these two brothers themselves who want for themselves to be first, to be best, to be closest. And they want it, did you hear, guaranteed. Who do these guys think they are, anyway? Or maybe if we think about what James and John are asking here and why, the better first question we should ask about this text this morning is, what do James and John think God wants from them? And then to my mind, the second question this story today confronts us with is, what do they think God wants for them? What does God want from us as followers, as human beings? And then what does God want for us? Let's take the first question first. What does God, what does Jesus, God with us, want from us believers? James and John think, seem to think that what Jesus wants from them, what God wants from them, is their best. They are They say, ready, willing, and able to do whatever they have to do. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able, really, to drink the cup I have to drink, be baptized like I have to be baptized? And the twins say, with confidence and in unison, of course we are. James and John here remind me of the prominent, successful businessman who was at an out-of-town conference, and on Sunday he decided to visit a small local church. At announcement time, as often is the case in smaller churches, the pastor invited the man, the visitor, to stand where he was and just say a few brief words about himself by way of introduction. 
The businessman meant to say just a few words, his name and where he was from, but wanting to sound like a good Christian in front of these other Christians, these new Christians, this guy got a little carried away and he started out, he goes, well, you know, he said his name, and he goes, I've got a big house, I've got a wonderful family, a successful business, a good reputation, I've got enough money to support several wonderful Christian charities and causes, I have my health, I have unlimited opportunities and a great future in front of me, I guess most people would love to trade places with me, I've been so blessed, what more could God give me? And then pausing for dramatic effect before he concluded, before he could say anything else, a voice shouted from the back pew, how about a dose of humility? <laughs> this morning, uh, unusually, I'd like to compare our two scripture readings a little bit to get at these questions that I think they, both of them raise for us today. What does God want from us and what does God want for us? The first, of course, is this story from Mark about James and John demanding that Jesus reserve for them the two best places in glory, in heaven, in salvation, whatever and wherever that is, when it comes. The other scene, which Lori read from Luke's gospel, also gives us two men, coincidentally, one at Jesus' right and one at his left. This time, though, these two guys, like Jesus, are in the process of dying on a cross, of being crucified. And while the, the spatial configuration of these two scenes, in a way, is quite similar, Jesus and two guys, one on each side of him, the conversation and the understanding, the connection that takes place between the men that happens in one, but not in the other, couldn't be more different. Let's start by finishing up with the sons of Zebedee, who are presumptuous and self-confident enough to ask Jesus to demand from Jesus that they have reserved for them the second and third best seats in heaven. And it doesn't go well. The other disciples are furious with John and James. Jesus rejects their proposal out of hand as presumptuous, you don't even know what you're asking. They want it guaranteed and they want it easy, like I guess we all do. In August, right before our son Will left for college, his freshman year, he and Maggie, who was a few years younger, decided to go down the turnpike to um, Six Flags Great Adventure for one last family kids' time. They were each going to invite a friend so they could. One last time together as kids ride King Daka and Batman and all the awesome roller coasters down there. So as I, the parent, was buying their tickets online the night before at their request, it turned out that from their, Maggie and William's point of view, the only way to really enjoy Six Flags anymore is to buy over and above the entrance ticket what they call a flash pass. Right? I can see some heads nodding. It wasn't even a question for them. Nobody waits in line anymore. I'm from the West Coast. I call that waiting in line. And there are three kinds of flash passes I learned in a very complicated three-hour-long ordeal. First, there is the bronze flash pass, which cuts your waiting time 25%. Then there is the gold flash pass that cuts your waiting time, it says, drastically. 
And then there is the all-powerful and quite expensive platinum flash pass, $500 a season over and above the regular season pass ticket price. So if you've got the money, you hardly have to wait at all. It's easy. And that's what James and John are hoping for at this point. They've done the work. They've put in the time. Their friends don't like it. Jesus doesn't either, but that's their point of view. More dangerous, I think, is that just underneath the shiny surface of their overconfidence, these twins, is, that there, is their clear belief that somehow they need to be able, worthy, even perfect, to go with Jesus wherever he's going. Are you able, he asked them. Of course we're able. The answer confidently, but if they're like me, certainly, or any human being I've ever known, they're really not so sure. Why is it that we think the only version of ourselves we can present to the world is the problem-free, perfect version? In this past August issue of The Economist, there was an article called The Perfectionist Trap. And the author, Josh Cohen, wrote, in my work as a psychoanalyst, I frequently encounter people in the grip of some punishing ideal of professional, romantic, physical, or moral perfection. Rarely a day passes without at least one patient lamenting or berating themselves for having fallen short of an exacting goal or a standard they had set for themselves. This self-laceration is usually amplified by the belief that someone else they know, who they see on Facebook or Instagram, a colleague, a sibling, or friend, would in their place have mustered the necessary effort or talent or guile to succeed. It's a heavy burden, thinking that being able, that being good enough, that being perfect is the only thing God wants from you or that life wants from you. James and John have given up everything to follow Jesus. They followed this guy when nobody knew him. They followed him before he did any miracles. They've walked dusty roads with Jesus. They've endured danger with him. They've trusted him. They've risked a lot. And now that he's getting more and more popular, now that God obviously has something big planned for him, James and John think that their devotion and their performance should be rewarded. That they, those things qualify them to be elevated above everyone else. Guaranteed. Easy. But James and John haven't been listening. What they ask, demand from Jesus, guarantee us a place, one at your right hand and one at your left, shows that they completely misunderstand what he's been telling them over and over again, which is a theme in Mark's gospel. We all misunderstand. They misunderstand his mission, his purpose, his destiny. They're like us, James and John. They misunderstand what Jesus wants from them and, I think, what he wants for them. And I think our earlier reading from Luke this morning can help clear that misunderstanding up. Luke tells us a few verses before the text Lori read, they crucified Jesus there with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. There's that phrase. One of the criminals hanging there derided Jesus, saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked the first criminal and said, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then the second criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This guy asks, doesn't demand, asks that Jesus simply accept him as he is. He understands maybe his life up to this point, which is not a very positive point, has forced him to understand the truth of both of our scriptural texts this morning, that God doesn't want the best from you, God wants the truth of you. And Jesus answers him here in Luke very differently than he does the twins. Jesus says to this criminal, dying on a cross, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The man just asked Jesus to accept him as he is. The famous and incredibly influential psychologist Carl Jung once wrote, the acceptance of oneself is the essence of the whole moral problem and the epitome of a whole outlook on life. That I feed the hungry, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues, but what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy himself, are the, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved." You know, we're so conditioned to present only the best of ourselves that we can cobble together and put out there to the rest of the world and to ourselves and to God. But these two texts today show that what Jesus wants from us is just the truth, the broken parts of us, the mistakes we've made, the wrongs, and all the good things, the miraculous things that make us who we are. And then what does God want for us, according to these two texts this, this morning? Well, I think both of them push us beyond the notion that Christian faith, even in today's neoliberal Protestant world in which most of us live, mainline Protestantism in the United States, Christian faith today, even in our postmodern world, is more than just about learning to accept oneself. That's only the first step. Following Jesus is also about salvation. It's hard to believe I have to say that out loud. And in Mark, James and John, like the dying criminal in Luke, get one thing right. Jesus is heading into glory. And Luke shows us that this criminal's request is also based on the assumption of Jesus' future king kingship. I'm getting what I deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Considering that both he and Jesus are in the process of being executed, this is a pretty optimistic point of view. 
This guy doesn't know exactly where Jesus is going or how Jesus is going to get there. All he asks is to be remembered as he is, as he really is. And our Lord, in response, promises him more than he asks for. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I'm not sure what paradise or heaven is, let alone where it is exactly. I can say with some certainty that it's probably not what I want it to be exactly. But this criminal today who's facing death and the truth of who he is, this guy who has done so much wrong in his life, has it more right than I do, and certainly more right than James and John do. God doesn't want confidence from us or performance. God wants the truth of us. And heaven, salvation, glory, that's what God wants for us. That's what God desires to give back to us. That's just what we celebrated in Caroline's baptism this morning. God wants to give back to us the person we really are, the person who, we were, who was given life in the first place, the real you, the real me. God wants to be with that us, the truth of us, just like the day we were born. What a gift. Amen.